I welcome you back this evening. I appreciate you being back, as you probably know, if you are, unless you are a guest here tonight. On Sunday nights, we are going through a journey with John, where we're looking at John's very unique gospel and the story, the way he which he portrays Jesus and his purpose going through to get us to believe and trust that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to be in John chapter 6 tonight, so you want to turn there if you're following along. It's interesting what uh, motivates people. I learned that this morning. Um, <laughs> kind of um, keep track of the social media on, on Northside, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that. Uh, up to this point, uh, Northside's Facebook page, you know, we post content, ser- sermon series and, and pictures of people and things going on and stuff like that. You know, sometimes you'll get two, three, four shares. Maybe if you have a really good post, you'll get seven, eight, nine shares. Um, uh, this, this morning, as of right now, we have 51 shares of our sermon series, um, which doesn't say anything tremendous about my preaching as much as it does the power of a chocolate chunk cookie. So <laughs> you figure out what motivates folks, but um yeah, the uh, the Burleigh family uh, got the family pack, and uh, Amy Decker won the uh, single uh, second prize, I guess. And so uh, congratulations to them on that. almost feel obligated to go get a tray of them for everybody who shared, but I don't know. What happens on Sunday night stays on Sunday night. I'm not, don't obligate me to that just yet. If you're in John chapter 6, uh, we are at a kind of an interesting point tonight. We're going to go through... Several stories, there's a lot to cover, we won't get through all of chapter 6 tonight, but I'm kind of working on, a, well this is something I'm going to give to you tonight, and I want you to ponder it and chew on it, and uh, you know, I, I'd love to get your response back to what, see what you think on my premise here, after I kind of read through these stories and studied them and thought about them a little bit, I have an idea and, and uh, hopefully... Uh, I'm not looking necessarily for all agreement, but I'd love to know your thoughts. John chapter 6 is a, a full chapter. We're going to be introduced to the fourth of the of seven miracles that Jesus will perform through the book of John. The first was turning water to wine or water to extra grapey juice, whatever you want to say. Uh, the second was the healing of the official's son. Uh, the third was the... Um, Healing of the lame man, which we skipped through that last week, the other things going on. And uh, so we'll jump right into the fourth miracle tonight. Also in chapter 6, we will get the first of the I am statements. And these are prevalent throughout John. John's very clear that he wants us to understand, the reader to understand who he is. The Greek uh, for that is ego and me, um, literally saying I am the one. And so um, as we think about Jesus' statements, we're going to see the first of those tonight, a very picturesque statement that Jesus makes. Um, We are geographically by the Sea of Galilee. We're going to start on the southern part of it. And as we go through chapter 6, we're going to proceed to the northern part of it. Um, And so we'll follow along that way. And as we begin tonight, I want you to You've probably heard this parable before. It was a Sunday school class uh, full of children, and uh, the teacher was trying to teach a lesson on Noah's Ark. 
So she was describing the animals that God placed on the ark. It's a younger class, so she thought she'd come up with a creative way. And so she said, okay, children, I'm going to describe something. I want you to tell me what it is. So she said, the first one is it's a very, it's very large and uh, huge ears and four legs and a giant trunk. Anybody have any ideas? And Jimmy kind of raised his hand and said, well, I think it's an elephant, but since we're at church, the answer must be Jesus. It's a humorous way of kind of describing when I, in my previous job, I used to call this the churchy answer. You know, if I would, I would ever ask a question that was too tough or it was got kind of silent and awkward, someone would just say, Jesus? <laughs> it's kind of the answer we expect. Tonight's story, as we go through these different parts of, of um, what Jesus encountered, I want to kind of ask the question, is the answer, is Jesus always the answer? We're in John chapter 6. We're going to read starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Have the people sit down, Jesus said. There's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So we start out in John chapter 6, and we're going to look at a series of problems and solutions. And the problem is the basic problem of hunger. Uh, This crowd is following him, 5,000 men, so extrapolating that to a preacher's count, there was probably fifteen to 20,000 people. Uh, Ladies, imagine a conference that is to capacity at Hartman Arena. And uh, Lori Kingsley just forgets to bring any food. What would the reaction be? Uh, It would probably be a pretty quick revolt. There's a problem. Big crowd of people. uh, No food to eat. It occurs to me, as this problem happens, why did Jesus take this problem on? I mean, they chose. It wasn't like he said, hey, let's go up this mountain together and we'll figure out lunch later. I mean, they could have gone off and found lunch on their own or maybe they could have brought their lunch. Why did Jesus choose to solve this problem? The scripture doesn't tell us. 
But he had done enough miracles by this time to begin drawing a crowd. He had turned the water to wine. He had healed the official son. He had healed the lame man. And so this crowd is gathering. And as we'll find out later, the reason that most of them have gathered is not so much because they believe in Jesus or that they trust in Jesus, but because they just want to see what he could do. What he would do, we'll see this come up again and again as Jesus does miracles. People begin to, and we kind of looked at it with the healing of the official son, um, they seek Jesus out for what he can do for them. The problem of hunger is a physical problem. And Jesus asks, how are we going to solve it? How do we feed these people? And uh, <laughs> the disciples have the first ever recorded church meeting. We have a problem. And how do we solve it? And there's one guy over here saying, we don't have enough money. There's no way we could solve this problem. We don't have enough money. It's impossible. The other guy over here says, we don't have the resources. It's impossible. We don't even have the people that can't manage the programs. It's just, it's just not doable. You know, for people of faith, sometimes we, we come to these points where we, we have this really big challenge. And the logical part of us, the, maybe the analytical mind says, well, you know, we have to have X, Y, Z to accomplish A, B, and Z. Um, we have to accomplish these things in the right order. And that's something that people of faith come up against again and again. Dealing with this problem, the answer to them uh, is that verse um, he takes what little they have, verse nine, verse ten, he has the people sit down, and then he takes the loaves and he gives thanks and he distributes those, and there's so much more left over than they even started with. Great sermon, great lesson about how, how little is much in God's hands. He can take something that's very small with just enough faith. We can multiply and, and do even above and beyond what we can ask or imagine, right? Um, so the result of that is not more people trusting in Jesus. The result of that is an even larger crowd, and by the way, an even more demanding crowd. People are going to seek after Jesus to solve their problems. Because you see, if this guy could solve their most basic problem of a meal for fifteen to 20,000 people, and he could make that happen with five loaves and two fish, don't you know there were people sitting back there thinking, you know, here's a guy who doesn't have to worry about money and who doesn't have a problem with resources, you know what we ought to do? We ought to make him king. He could overthrow Caesar. He doesn't have to worry about money. He doesn't have to worry about resources. Surely he could solve our problem. This is exactly what they do. They go to problem number two. Problem number two is that of oppression. Verses, uh, starting verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely... This is the prophet who is to come into the world. When they see what Jesus does and the people begin to talk, you know, they've already experienced these other miracles, and now they see this one, 
and, and just you can just feel the momentum of the crowd begin to swell, begin to build. And they start saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's going to overthrow Caesar. He's going to make a name for Israel. He's going to handle all of the years of injustice and oppression that they have suffered. Some people look at Jesus like that, too. So there's a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of things that are wrong that shouldn't happen. And Jesus is the answer. Jesus is going to fix all that. The answer to that is never given. I, I need to close my Bible so you, you know that this is just Toby's opinion. This is not in Scripture. But I, I could re- really see how that was a great temptation to Jesus. They could have fixed that one. But that wasn't the mission. That wasn't the purpose for which God had called him. And I think sometimes we've got to be real careful about doing exactly what the people did in John chapter 6. Jesus, they're hungry. They feed them. Jesus, we need a king. We need you to take care of this. He doesn't. He doesn't answer that. And we know, of course, that he wouldn't do that. And he withdraws to a lonely place for the purpose of getting away from the crowd. Possibly to get away from a temptation that the enemy might have been putting to to uh, chase after the idea of being king, being ruler, establishing a government. I mean, that was the very initial temptation that was offered, according to Matthew's account. Well, again, we're reading more in the text than is there, but Jesus withdraws from the demanding crowd. He, um, Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain, by himself. To me, that's very telling. There was a problem. Uh, in my mind, Jesus absolutely could have solved that. But it wasn't his mission. It wasn't his purpose. He withdrew from that call. Verses, uh, starting in verse 16, we're going to read. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. Presumably, he's still up on the mountain. When they got up into the boat, they set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat that had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boat and went to Capernaum. In search of Jesus. This is a very real thing. They want him to solve this problem. 
Meanwhile, Jesus and disciples are having their own problem. Um, I really can't go through this section of the story without looking at Doug Wagner, who's had enough stories of adventure and uh, crazy storms happening uh, upon guys trying to get across a lake. Um, Karen's probably heard enough of those. I've been on a couple of trips with Doug and the gang, and you get out there on the water, and it's just you and another dude, and the wind starts rocking the boat. gets a little scary, doesn't it? It gets draining physically. At some point, there gets to be an emotional checkpoint in your head where you say, listen, this is put-up-or-shut-up time. <laughs> you know, There's only a couple options out here if we stay in the water, and neither of those options look real good. So keep paddling. This is where the disciples are. Now they watch Jesus do this amazing thing. Then all of a sudden, for, for whatever reason, maybe from their perspective, he seems to bail on them. They're like, stand around, okay, well, let's head across the lake and head back to where we're supposed to go. So they get in the boat. Now these are trained fishermen, some of them. And uh, I wouldn't think that a storm here or there would, would scare them. But the accounts from not just John's account, but the other gospel accounts tell us that this is a pretty bad one. This is one where they were... Worried for their lives. And as this storm uh, takes place, here comes Jesus walking on the water, seemingly maybe unconcerned. He's about to pass them by. <laughs> I don't, I'd love to be on the boat for that. Uh, Jesus, we must be dead already. <laughs> uh, they're terrified. They don't know what's going on. You know, this is at night. There's no, I mean, it's, it's obviously very, very dark, and there's no uh, illumination except maybe per, perhaps from the lightning or something, but uh, it's bad. Jesus walks out to them alone at night, uh, and they are terrified. And, in fact, they, other accounts say that they believe it's a ghost. Now, John leaves out the account here of Jesus calling Peter and him walking on the water, but do you remember? Do you remember what it was that sunk Peter? I can ask Sunday night crowd. What what was it that sunk Peter? What what happened? What? Lack of faith, right? He saw the storm. He saw the storm, and he focused on the wind and the waves, and fear overcame faith, and he began to sink. Lord, save me! I drown. That came from a natural place because Scripture tells us in John that they were terrified. The guys in the boat were terrified. Imagine the guy standing on the water. (laughs) They are completely terror-stricken and full of fear. And Jesus' answer to them is, um, I don't know if paternalistic is too strong, but it's kind of like, it's I, come on, don't be afraid. Like, almost dismissive. Guys, come on. It's me. Let alone the fact he's walking on the water at night, about to pass them, about to leave them. Uh, and, and then, as soon as he gets in the boat, John says that they've reached the shore, which is like great timing, Jesus. Thank you. Uh, the, the, the problem, in my mind, is not really the storm. It's the fear. Uh, it, that, that fear that erodes the faith as it did with Peter. And the answer to that is, don't be afraid. 
you know, we deal with that a lot. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, our, our theme verse uh, last year. Have I not told you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think it's a constant recurring theme among the disciples that we are easily... Our boat is rocked, not by the wind and the waves, but by fear. Worrying about all the things that have happened and worrying even more about things that haven't happened. And Jesus' answer to that is courage. Don't be afraid. Um, Which is an answer that lies within us, right? We have to decide to have courage. We have to decide to take the next step. We have to decide to have faith. Jesus wasn't afraid out there. It was the disciples who were afraid. He needed them to make the decision up here and in here to trust, to listen. And so we go to the last one and have enough time to go through uh, and read the entire story. So you can skim it if you want or kind of follow along. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. Um, Starting in verse verse 23, um, they found him on the other side of the lake, and they said, Rabbi, when do you get him? The crowds find him at Capernaum, and Jesus essentially accuses them of selfishness. You're not looking for me, very truly I tell you, you're not looking for me because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Remember back in Matthew when Jesus himself was tempted, turn these stones to bread? It was the same temptation. I want you to worry about yourself. I want you to worry about your own needs first. This is what the people are doing. You know, they're not really concerned with who Jesus is or what his mission is necessarily. Just the fact that this guy can feed 15,000, 20,000 people with a few loaves and fish. That's all they want. Jesus is an ends to their means. They don't see themselves as coming to Jesus to be disciples and followers. So they get into this sort of argument. Um, the crowd says, oh yeah, prove it. Our, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. Essentially they're saying, okay, one miracle, all right, 15,000, 20,000 people, okay, but Moses, for a, for a generation, fed our forefathers in the desert every single day. You know, this is, this is uh, basically them saying, beat that. And so he says, listen, you forget. It wasn't Moses who, um, who did that. Moses was just the messenger. In my job, sometimes I have the... Uh, I mean, I have obviously the job of being a messenger a lot, but sometimes I do that quite literally. Someone will say, I want to give a gift to a person or a family. I want to give it to you because I want to be anonymous, and I want you to take it to them and say, this is for you. So I'll do that. And, you know, invariably, who gets the credit? And I'll tell them, this is not from me. I'm just the messenger. I'm just giving it to you, right? Well, this is how they viewed Moses. 
Right? Moses was just a messenger. Moses was just the leader at the time when God chose to feed them every day. And they, and they bestowed all that, most of that credit to Moses himself. And Jesus said, no, 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 wait a second. You gotta listen. That wasn't, that wasn't about Moses. That was about my father who fed you in the desert. <clears throat> um, and by the way, it's the same father who, who just fed you across the lake. And then he says something. Then he says something that really does rock their world. Uh, gets them into a whole lot of trouble, in fact. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. He's saying God did this amazing thing by sending you manna. But he isn't done sending you bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And I come from God. And I'm here to sustain you, not physically, which is what you're looking for, but I'm here to sustain you in a spiritual way for a need that you don't even really understand that you have. And they say, give us this bread. Give us this bread. Of course we want the bread. I mean, back to the story of the Samaritan woman. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to come to this well to drink. He's talking about spiritual things, and they're, of course, thinking of physical things, which is natural for us of the flesh. They they think Jesus is pro-carbs or something, you know. Uh, they're thinking on a, a physical level, and Jesus is is much, much deeper than that, or much, much higher than that, if you, how you want to view it. They grumble, and they, they say, wait a second, you know, if you're the, who does this guy think he is? We know who this guy is. We know who his parents are. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm the living bread. And, and in fact, he... He even steps it up. He says, if you want to be with me, if you want to follow me, um, you've got to look at the right verse. I am the, verse 51, the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then that really sets them off because if he's talking about the way they think he's talking about the physical, then he's he's crazy or is he's cannibalistic, and at, at the very minimum he's a lawbreaker because that was absolutely forbidden uh, to partake of anything with the with the lifeblood still in it. And he's trying to say, listen, I'm the only way. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 53, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood um, has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, if you take this literally, if you take this in a, in a, a literal translation or, uh, interpretation as they very much did, um, their reaction would have been exactly right. In fact, he will, we will not get there tonight, but this is, the, this is the verse I talked about this morning that sends people away. They say, uh-uh, I'm out, Jack. I'm done. I'm not following this guy anymore if he teaches that. It's up to interpretation, but I really believe that 
in my heart that Jesus came to this point because he he needed to thin the crowds. He needed to understand to separate the people who were following him for who he was versus following him because of what he had the ability to do. This is John's whole message. I mean, he's pointing out the miracles. He's pointing out the I am statements to get us to trust in who he is, not necessarily in what he can do. And so the choice whether or not to believe or not, as it was with them, the same is with us. On Sunday Night Crowd, I don't doubt there are many that have made that choice to believe and trust in him. But again, like the, <clears throat> like the point in the storm, it's up to us. We have to decide whether we're going to believe, whether we're going to trust in him, or whether we're just going to seek Jesus out when he can do something for us. So what do we learn? Well, boiling it down on a very simple level, Jesus faced a lot of problems, not just in John chapter 6, but in all throughout the gospel, and he did not fix all of them. There are many problems in that world, and there are many problems in this world. This is what I want you to think about and chew over and pray over and and tell me if you disagree or not. Um, that Jesus did not come as the answer to every problem. That's an important thing to understand. He is not the answer to every problem. But, remember in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, he tells his disciples, John writes this down, to gather everything up, let nothing be wasted. I thought about that. Why did he... Have them go through the task of picking up leftover bread out on the mountainside. And I don't know the full answer to that, but one of my, that kind of works into what I'm talking about tonight is, Jesus, when he came from heaven to earth, stepped into a finite world. So he had a finite amount of time. He had a finite amount of energy. Uh, he had a finite amount of ability in the flesh. And he was very focused on the thing which he had to do, that he had about three years to do. And so for him to focus on doing everything that everyone else needed him to do would have been a waste of energy, which to me is the essence of bad stewardship, taking what God's given you and using that in a wasteful way. So he's not the answer to every problem, but he's the only remedy to our eternal problem and I don't think there's anybody that disagrees with the second statement but it's the first statement you know some people really you know Jesus is going to solve every problem I have so uh, this is open for your interpretation I'd love for you to think about it send me an, uh, an email or a text or come talk to me and let me know what you think um, Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 and 7 is a verse that I refer to often. In fact, this past couple of weeks especially. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is especially important when you, when you pray a prayer over a problem 
and it doesn't, God says no. God answers it differently than you expect. Verses 6 is so important to be connected to verse 7. That when we present your request to God with thanksgiving, that the peace of God, not, not because he answered it and fixed it just exactly as you imagined, but knowing that when you bring that to him, he's going to handle it in the best way. And sometimes that may be as you want, but some, most of the time it won't be. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus would go, later go on to say in the book of John, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, disciples are still going to have to go through 70 A.D. I mean, they're, they're, they're still going to face a lot of persecution, a lot of trouble. The, the, the church is going to face tremendous persecution. And Jesus says, in me you may have peace. The storm may still rage, but you will have peace. The answer that you wanted may not come, but you will have peace because he's overcome the world. Because he solved the one problem that you and I could never fix. All our other problems, you know, if they don't get solved, if they don't work themselves out, then so be it. But the one problem that we need him to most solve, he was on mission totally about. So that's my premise. Faith in Jesus will not solve every problem, but it will see us through it will see us through the problems we face, and he will be the remedy for the only problem we could never face by ourselves. So the lesson is yours tonight. I leave you that to consider and ponder. I'd love for your, um, your thoughts on that. Uh, Sunday night crowd is a very thoughtful crowd. So uh, if you have a need tonight to come to Jesus, that uh, he has not been allowed to be the remedy that you need for your sin, we'd be glad to help you with that. Or if you've allowed him to do that and you've sort of broken away from the vine, like to help you and encourage you in whatever way we can. If you have any need tonight, I'd like to meet you down front, and we'll help you and pray for you in any way we can. As together we stand and sing.